Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, please just feed us through the power of your spirit. Let us partake in more of your goodness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the text this morning, we need to understand something right off the bat. And it is this. We need to appreciate, and we've looked at this text now for two weeks. We today are mainly focused on the prophecies to Judah and to Joseph. But we need to appreciate that in the fullness of this entire prophecy, for these sons of Israel, that this family of Israel, this family of 70, they will not hear directly, prophetically, from God until 430 years later. They will have a period of time of silence of basically 430 years. This family of 70 will actually, at this time, grow to, and there is a debate on how large they grow to, and that debate is established a little bit by a textual reality in the book of Numbers, but they will grow to millions in size. Multiple millions. By the way, you only need a growth rate from 70 people of about 2.6 children per household to get to the point where 430 years later, you are in the millions. Actually, this is just an aside altogether, but one of the most interesting evidences of a younger earth in our world today, if you're someone who maybe came here today convinced that the world can't possibly be young because, you know, Darwin, because Mr. Science of the 18th century said so. One of the most clear-cut evidences for a younger earth is actually historic growth rates. To have roughly 8 billion people on the planet Earth today, you have a real mathematical problem if you don't believe in a mass extinction event roughly 4,500 years ago. The Bible, of course, talks about the flood around that time, but you need an event like that because where the earth goes down to only a small number of people to make the math work. It actually, to reach 8.6 billion people today, you only need a year-to-year growth rate of less than half of 1%. Basically, the population to double 30 times in the period of 4,500 years. So, that's an aside. There's a great Ken Ham talk about that. But, you know, I don't get to preach on the Noahic Flood all the time. And I don't get to preach on necessarily younger Earth topics all the time. But there is this reality of where our population stands today that actually just screams at us and tells us something rather unique. But back on topic. All is about to go quiet in the biblical record for the family of Israel for a time of over 400 years. A deafening silence for a people who will be subjected into slavery for much of it. 
Think of it. They were passing on the promises of their great, 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 great grandfather. What did he say again? What did he say again? They don't have the written word of Moses. This is just a story. They're passing down a promise, passing down a collection of prophecy, of good word that they're passing down from family to family. And you really need to appreciate how amazing it is that 430 years later, it's really in one sense the great miracle at the start of the book of Exodus, that there actually is a family of Israel that is still awaiting the promises of God. I mean, here we sit and we have the good fortune of having a completed testimony of the Word of God and how confident are we, and I think we should be biblically more confident than we often are, that the truth of this Word, the truth of the prophecies contained in this book will be passed down from generation to generation. That hell will not prevail against the promises of God. They're going to have 400 plus years of silence. They've only been burying people in that graveyard for 289 years. 400 plus years of silence. And yet they will still be a faithful remnant. Not all, of course, but a faithful remnant awaiting God to honor his promises. And so right at the beginning, we really need to appreciate this idea And I would actually say, especially with Judah, but really the two promises that both Joseph and Judah received would have been remarkably dear for them. (laughs) So, as I said, last week we covered the other ten, but this week we covered the two brothers who make up so much of the story that we've been in since March of this year. Judah and Joseph. And I'm actually going to begin with Joseph in verse 22. Not because his verses are first, but because Joseph's blessing will begin with looking back. It will look backward. It will look at his life, whereas Judah's blessings will begin with looking forward. So in verse 22, a dying father looks upon his favored son Joseph and remarks... Basically, that Joseph was this unique plant among the family. He was actually a plant by a spring that was hidden by a wall in one sense. And yet somehow, I mean, not somehow, he knows how. Yet through the power of God, his branches reached over that wall and blessed the covenant family. And that's just such a great summary of the life of Joseph. For he was the son who was able to bless the family unknowingly at first. They're not even aware that his branches are feeding them in the time of famine. When famine ran the region's rivers nearly dry, it was God using Joseph in a great and mighty way that provided for that family. And Jacob is acknowledging this, and so he continues on in this in verse 23, because that's not the whole story. And he recounts how his brothers had attacked him, likening them to archers. They were harassers who did him great injury. Even if you remember one time Jacob rebukes Joseph for his prophetic dream. 
And the dying Jacob is just awed by how awesome the peaceable nature of Joseph is and was for them. While Joseph could have easily attacked his brothers, I mean, at the height of his power, he is the most powerful prime minister in the world. He only needed to say the word and he could crush them. He had Egypt's armies at his disposal. But instead of lashing out against his brothers, Jacob just remarks at how God kept Joseph busy with the work of God. And what is the blessing that Joseph receives for such a steadfast and peaceable faith? We see it in the second half of verse 24. Jacob's going to give three rapid descriptive names for God, one right after the other. The first descriptive name is the Mighty One. And in one sense, it's the Mighty One in His hands. Jacob wants you to think about that. And then the next descriptive name that life of Joseph helps us to see is that God is a great shepherd. And the last descriptive name for God that Joseph helped us see is that God is this stone, this rock of Israel. So what this dying father is prophetically sharing with his son Joseph is this. He's saying God has used Joseph's life to teach the family of God a little more about who he is, about who God is. So when we think of how the prophecy would go quiet for 400 years, this family of Israel would have been able to tell that story of Joseph, that wonderful story about this peacemaker amongst the brothers, the one who did not strike back, a love that did not lash out in violence, a love that did not give the brothers a judgment they deserved. And in this unthinkable, remarkable grace, the people would see more of God in the patience of Joseph. In those camps, as the centuries passed and this family of Israel was made to be slaves, in one sense, this story of Joseph will serve as a foretaste of the greater reality of who our God is. Another way to put it, Jacob declares to Joseph, when people hear your story, they'll know God is strong. And when people hear your story, they'll know God always cares for his sheep. And lastly, Jacob says, when people hear your story, my beloved son, they'll know the foundation they stand on and being a part of the family of God is one in which no enemy can prevail over. And then, starting in verse 25, is that, if that is not enough of an honor, Jacob begins to look forward for Joseph. And while much of this is symbolic language, Jacob then asserts Joseph, God will bless him with heavenly blessings. And with those blessings of the deep, it's an allusion to even into death, God will bless you. And then there is a generational promise of blessing. The idea of being blessed both in the womb and in the breast. Now this is something that in the modern world we've kind of come to forget. For instance, after church we could go to the Gemeine House, we could see that Smith grave, that soldier who was struck down in the Battle of Gettysburg, and we could see four small stones next to him. And those four small stones represent 
the four of his eight children who were cut down in death before he died. And he died a young man in his late 30s. See, just to have a child born in the ancient world, to even have a child born at the time of Gettysburg, was not a promise that the child would thrive. And so this both the blessing of fruit of the womb, but blessing of the child thriving at the breast is in one sense, not only will I give you many descendants, but your descendants will be fruitfully blessed in the Lord. It's this wonderful promise. It's in one sense a household promise that we still, we actually receive as well in the New Testament. And then Jacob says something that is yet another first in the Scripture. He says, basically, you are the greatest of my blessings. For your life was uniquely crowned in God's work through you. I'm sure most of you have heard of the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow, of course, is what John the Baptist took on. I I personally take a view that Jesus takes on the Nazarite vow at the upper room. But actually, the truest sense of the Nazarite vow is seen in Joseph. See, the the word Nazarite, it comes from the word Nazir in the Hebrew. And Nazir is the word for distinguished one, or a prince would be called a Nazir. Someone who stands apart. And so in the fairest sense, Jesus' whole life, he shows himself as one who stands apart in righteousness. But here in Scripture is the first individual who is ever called a Nazir. In some sense, a Nazarite. Once set apart uniquely. And in how they live, they distinctively shine certain qualities of God, certain realities of God's goodness and righteousness that that we see through them. It's fair to say that you can say one sense, as a son of Adam, Joseph is a foreshadowing of that Nazarite vow. And so he is distinct. He is set apart. So Jacob's final words to Joseph are, You stood out uniquely amongst your brothers as the most special prince who revealed that God is mighty, God is unmovable, and God is a loving shepherd. And for that, my son, I am eternally grateful for you because you, my son, reached us with salvation even though there was a dividing wall of hostility. And you taught us more about who our God is because God has now revealed his face to those who love him in faith through Christ Jesus, we too can echo the words of the dying father of Joseph and say, we have seen the one who has revealed the goodness of God. That being not Joseph in the fullness of it, but our Lord Christ Jesus. We know what God is like because of the revelation the revealing, the great advent that is the life of Christ. There's a sad reality we should talk about when it comes to our faith. Oftentimes, we, I just was having a conviction this morning on my tongue and the words I say 
and not being a good representative for the Lord lately in that. And, and it's easy to kind of just like pass that off. Well, you know, Jesus saves us from sin. I love to sin. This is a great relationship. No. There's a truth being taught here in the recognition of Joseph's exceptional life. And it's that when we don't strive for righteousness, we don't strive for holiness and strive for sanctification, we miss the opportunity to be lights of the world, as we talked about earlier, but we miss that opportunity to really show and share the love of Christ, for, to get people to know, to display the goodness of Christ more in our life. It's a missed opportunity. We don't want to miss it. We want to see what the beauty of what's going on here and say, we, we really do need to strive. We really do need to run this race well so that we represent the good things of God. I'm sure we all have people who were like that for us, that through their they display whether they're still maybe alive or they've gone on in death, they've displayed for us such a unique reality of the love of God that we were ever changed by knowing them. And so, this is what God shares with Joseph through his dying. And before we get into Judah, I just want to have a quick interlude. After the fall, how does, the, what is the first major narrative, the first major conflict that comes next? What comes next is a division of two brothers, Cain and Abel. And the jealousy of the one strikes down the other. Here we are at the end of the prophetic revelation of the book of Genesis and don't think it's a coincidence that as this book wraps up, we have a brother who, first off, was the suffering servant, but then we have another brother who was the Judas, who was the Judah, who sold his brother for pieces of silver into slavery. He thought it was a death sentence to him. And yet, at the end of Genesis... A story of conflict between two brothers becomes a hopeful story that will carry the family of God through for the next 400 plus years of silence. God is a God of design and order, and there is a reason why he has patterned this book to end in such a way. And so now we look at to Judah. And Jacob is making clear that actually, and he's actually extending to Judah, the greatest of all prophetic revelation. If you remember, what started the problems for Joseph? Joseph told his family, hey, I had a dream. You were all going to bow to me. Here's Jacob dying, and he's going to actually tell a greater story, a greater story of worship. And he says, it's going to come from Judah. Judah is going to be the one who all the sons, even Joseph's sons, all the sons come to worship, come to bow down before. This is a, a, an amazing reversal. 
And yet, in one sense, it was foretold at the very birth of Judah himself. You see, with Leah, she had had three sons previously, and she desired for each of those sons, for Reuben, for Simeon, for Levi, to ultimately that those sons might win the affections of her husband. That maybe Jacob will now love me the way I desire to be loved by him. And in each of the situations, in each of those verses, she was disappointed. He didn't. He didn't. And yet it was at the birth of Judah. She had a different thought. She realized how treasured God, how set apart she was by God, how God had treasured her. And for that, she decided to name her fourth child thinking of God and the blessing of God and basically associated Judah's name with the name of praise. And here at the end of, of Jacob's life, Jacob is saying, Judah, your name of praise, your name of praise before I die, it's going to be a name that will be praised forever by all sons, by all brothers. That will come from your line. It's a remarkable promise. They will bow before the one who carries your name. And so this remarkable reversal of fortunes is happening here in verse 8. And the question becomes, why did this happen? And if you've been with us for the series, you know why this has happened. Because the longest... Uh, declaration, the longest oratory moment of all of Genesis is when Judah, hearing that this veiled prime minister of Egypt, whom he does not realize is Joseph yet, when this prime minister declares, Benjamin will be mine, I am taking him, I will have him. And Judah speaks up in that moment. He says, no, you don't understand. My father has set his love on this child in such a way that you cannot have him. You take my life instead of his. You take me instead of him. And for that, for that moment, Judah was the first in all the Scripture to foreshadow what the actual gospel is that there would be a son of Judah who upon the cross would go to the cross and say, no, you may not have them. My father has set them apart as uniquely as mine. And so my life for theirs, you may not have them. And for that, Judah receives the blessing of all blessings, the portion of all portions. <laughs> and God, and in this prophecy, he's called a lion cub. A lion cub. A lion cub's not a lion. I've had a lot of weird, like, moments in my life. One of my weird moments is I've held a lion cub. I had a friend in high school, and his dad basically owned a zoo in Tijuana. And the lions had cubs, and he was like, do you want to hold a lion cub? And I'm like, sure. Went down to his house in Tijuana. Held the lion cub. I'm still alive to talk about it. A lion cub 
isn't the full animal. I've also touched the tiger before. That was not wise. I lived to tell about it, but partly at least. But he's a lion cub. He represents a greater lion. Who's the greater lion? The greater lion, of course, we know from Revelation 5.5 that the Apostle John wrote down for us is Christ himself. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Judah resembled the lion of gospel love. He resembled the king of heaven in his declaring, My life for the one in whom the Father loves. I love the Father too much for him to be taken. And so, as response to that love, we will never depart from Judah. This will come even more clear a thousand years later through the Davidic covenant. And then don't miss this phrase until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Seems like, I mean, it seems like a convoluted verse. We just want to throw it away, but it's actually a most important line. And let me illustrate why this way. Sometimes denominations, mainly Roman Catholics, will suggest you really still need some form of Levitical priesthood, some priesthood that you make an offering to for atonement for your sins to God. The second half of that verse that I just read actually stands in, in the face of that and says that's not true. See, Old Testament worship would look like and become, in one sense, for the people of Israel, oh, I just got to go down to the Levite and make the offering. I got to leave the offering before them, and I'm going to be okay because I made that offering. I did that work. But actually, this prophecy says, is actually saying in the reality that it's only Judah's line that will have an offering that can satisfy God. In one sense, this is an abridged, shortened version of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It's only the offering that will come from Judah's line that will satisfy God. And so why don't we need a Levitical priest today? Because the Lion of Judah has made the offering which satisfies. And that is the offering we rely upon. That is the work that we rely upon. That is the thing which satisfies. The Lion, the King of all kings. It's through that offering the lioness can sit next to the lion. It's through that offering that we can actually have a peace from life's sin. And then in verse 11, as most prophecy tends to do, Jacob piles on the imagery in order to foreshadow what will eventually come to pass for this king, of, king and lion of Judah. First, it's about there's image of tying a horse to a vine or a donkey to a choice vine. And let me illustrate what's being said this way. Calvin picks up on this. Now, some who want to run to Palm Sunday, there is an element of Palm Sunday foreshadowed here. 
you can see, uh, especially in Matthew's account of it, D.A. Carson, who translates, the, who was a lead translator in the ESV, he picks up on that parallel of how they might have been partly prepared, not just because of later prophecy, but because of this prophecy, to know Palm Sunday was to come. But also, but I want to get to this point that Calvin brings up about this passage that we can miss really easily. You would never tie a beast of burden to a vine. Yesterday we went to grab a pizza down in Green Lane as a family, minus Caitlin, she was at work. And we brought one of our dogs. And so I had the option, I could have attached the dog to the stand in which the pizza sits on, or I could attach the dog to the wrought iron fence outside near us while we ate. Which one did I choose? I chose the fence. Because what would have happened is if I attached the dog to the pizza stand, dog would have pulled the pizza stand, happy dog, sad individuals who can't eat pizza. You never tie a beast of burden to a vine. Now what is this telling us? Calvin takes this in a way I'm not going to take. He kind of says that there's so much coming in one sense, in the true new Israel, that we're just, there's such an abundance that we could tie an animal to a precious plant like a vine. I don't tend to think that's what's being illustrated. Take it or leave it. I think this might be a foreshadowing of the incarnation itself. Jesus is not, is he not the Messiah who says, I am the vine? And yet, was it is not his burden to carry flesh? Something that neither our father Adam nor none of the sons of Adam that went after him, that we could successfully navigate that reality of being connected perfectly to God through righteousness in our body. And yet, the king of Judah, the lion of Judah, he is a unique beast of burden in that he does not destroy the vine, but actually he fulfills the righteousness of God. He becomes the vine in which other vines can be grafted in through his shed blood, through his broken body. And so, in my opinion, that's what's being talked about here. But also, and it's providential you walk back in at this point, Luann, I was so happy about that last song we picked. Because the next image is one of grapes used for wine and grapes that are trampled on and crushed. The blood of grapes. And that both of these types of grapes are covering for the clothes of the king of Judah. The second half of this verse is talking about the two pathways, the two avenues in which we can come to the King of all kings, the King clothed in righteousness. We can either come to that lion, we can come to him in peace and receive him and accept him and trust in his righteousness to save, or we can try as we might to ignore his offering. And yet, for such individuals, a judgment will come and he will trample it. He will trample it. That is the truth of the matter, and it keeps marching on to say. 
And so, this is just a remarkable passage. It's one in which we can see how the good news that it shares could sustain this covenant family. Even when all powers of hell seem to be against it, even when it's enslaved in Egypt. This lion will either be received by you as a sacrificial offering, his life for yours, or he will judge you for your refusal to acknowledge his being adorned in righteousness. And then it closes with verse 12, with a description of his dark eyes. I'm sorry for those of you who like depictions of Jesus with blue eyes. But, and his teeth being whiter than milk. And the idea of verse 12 is this. It's similar to an idea that you can find in Psalm 45. There has been a lot of startling imagery. To, to borrow a, a line from the world of Narnia, and when we start thinking of God as this powerful lion, we wonder, is he safe? Is he safe? And the reality is, whether or not God is safe to you, ask you a question. Is he safe to you? Have you received the offering? If you receive it of his sacrifice, you are But we get scared at images like this. We get scared of the idea of God's judgment. And so here this prophecy closes, and what the idea behind verse 12 is, and just realize he's beautiful. This king of all kings, this lion of Judah, he is so beautiful. His beauty stands apart. It's remarkable. It's something that can't be comprehended or can't be seen like this anywhere else. And so maybe you came here today, maybe you don't know the Lord. Or maybe you've been wayward and you're walked with the Lord. And you're struggling to uphold the high call of living for the Lord. Remember, our Lord is beautiful. The Lord is beautiful. Embrace him. Embrace the line today of Judah. He is the God who bra bravely declared upon Calvary, my life for yours, I will shed my blood for you. And so receive it. Accept it. Rest in it. Allow the lion's offer of peace to so radically change you that you stop living in fear of what the world might say if you are growing greater faith towards him, but rather you learn to embrace the one in whom you have no reason to fear anymore. And for those who are already in the Lord, who already know the peace that comes with sitting beside the Lion of Judah, let us remember that this truth is meant to sustain us in our present circumstances. When life is hard and sorrows or ever near and ever present, the promise of a better day to come when the pain and despair of this world is finally removed once and for all by the King of all kings and when he ushers in his everlasting kingdom. That is supposed to give us a great hope. And that day is almost, is almost 4,000 years closer to having its fullest fulfillment than it first was when Jacob uttered these words, as his sons watched him die. And so be at peace. Be at peace because the king of Judah upon Calvary boldly roared, my life for yours, my life for yours, and received the grace of his offering.
Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that even though from the very beginning in the fall in the garden, we said we did not want you to be our king, that the king still came, and the king has set right the problem of sin for all those who believe upon him. Help us in faith to continue to kiss the Son lest he be angry. Help us to encourage others to kiss the Son lest he be angry. Help us to have no fear in the presence of the lion. And help us remember the lion that allowed himself to become a lamb, a slaughter for our sake, who did not lash out in violence against the brothers, but rather laid down his, his life in order to love the brothers. We praise him for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.